Hi everyone, Benjamin Smith here, pastor of Revealing Truth Ministries, Wesley Chapel. You know, God is always speaking good things to us and he has a word for you today, we are sure of it. Take some time out to listen and we'll be back as soon as we're done. God bless you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for each and every person here. We never take it for granted this opportunity that we have to come and minister together. I pray that you give me your inner wisdom to speak life into each and every person and that everybody under the sound of my voice will get something out of the message they can use. They can use and make their lives better. God, not just years from now or months from now or weeks from now, not even days from now. They will be able to use this word and make their lives better immediately. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Lift up your Bibles and say this confession. Say, this is my Bible. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do. I can have what it says I can have. Everything in my Bible is God breathed. And I aim to live by every word. It is essential to my faith foundation and works to change me from the inside out into the person God created me to be. That is why I shall never let it go. It is reliable. It is the truth. It is divine. It is the word of God and shall forever be to me. My Bible in Jesus name. Amen. Family, let's jump right in. You know, weeks ago, we began talking about trust in God and how that trust in God has two components. I'm going to show you a graphic. It's a new graphic, but it's a graphic that represents that trust relationship in nested circles. When you get the graphic on the screen, what you're going to see is you're going to see three circles. The outermost circle is trust in God, which is where we want to be. Our hope, our desire, our goal is that each and every one of us get to a place to where we have complete trust in God. But then focus on the other nested circles. Embedded within trust in God, you have commitment and devotion. <coughs> Those two things are a requirement. To trust in God. Notice they're completely in trust in God. They're not sticking out of one side. Pay close attention, though, to the nested relationship. Because of the three circles, there is an innermost circle. That innermost circle buried deep inside a commitment is devotion. It's your heart condition. It's the love you have for God. It's the driver behind the whole thing. Devotion being the center of it all, that right there, that's the key. Our discussion about commitment and devotion, that discussion has led us to a biblical example in the book of Ruth. As a summary, for those of you who need to just get caught up really quick, a man, a man named Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, they leave Bethlehem because of a famine. Ruth chapter one in the voice version of the Bible reads this way. 
A long time ago, when judges still ruled over Israel and the land was dried up with famine, a man from Bethlehem, which ironically means place of bread, left his home in Judah to live as a foreigner in the land of Moab. He traveled with his wife and their two sons. Now, the Bible goes on and it continues and explains that they settled in the land or country of Moab. They settled in Moab and over a period of time, Elimelech and his two sons, they passed away, leaving three women, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, both who were Moab women, leaving them all alone. When Naomi learns that God is once again bringing provision or prosperity or, or food in or near her homeland, she elects to go back home. Of her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth, the other was named Orpah, but Ruth is the, is the one with the depth of commitment and devotion to travel back home with Naomi. We pick up where we left off, which is Ruth chapter 1, verse 18. Still in the voice translation, it reads this way. When Naomi heard this, meaning heard that, hey, prosperity or provision is coming back to, to, to the Bethlehem area. When Naomi heard this and saw Ruth's resolve, well, this, this is Ruth, excuse me, Ruth's resolve, she stopped trying to talk her out of returning to Judah. The two women went on together to Bethlehem, news of their arrival spreading throughout Bethlehem. In fact, the whole community was humming with the report with the women exclaiming, could it really be the same Naomi who left us so long ago? You know how people are when you leave and come back for a while. Is that Jimmy? Yes, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's him. It's, could this still be the same Naomi? Listen to what Naomi says, verse 20. Do not call me Naomi ever again, for I am no longer pleasant. Call me Mara instead, for I am filled with bitterness because the highest one has treated me bitterly. I left this place full in spite of the famine, but the eternal has brought me back empty from a plentiful land. Why would you call me pleasant when the eternal has testified against me and the highest one has brought disaster upon me? Do you see what she did there? Naomi says, don't y'all call me Naomi, which, by the way, means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitterness, because the Lord has essentially soured my life. Do you see what she did? She relabeled herself to identify with her negative situation. Many of us do the same thing, even though we shouldn't, we do. As a student, you fail a test and then you label yourself dumb. As an aspiring professional, you don't pass your state board. So what do you do? You label yourself failure. As a, a, a woman, for whatever reason, you have not been able to conceive a child. So what do you do? You label yourself as being less of a woman. As a man, you have a difficult, you're having difficulty finding a job, so you label yourself as somehow being less of a man. You go through a, a bad divorce or you go through a harsh breakup and you label yourself damaged goods. 
hey, you experienced a tragedy. And as you experience that tragedy, you know what you do? You label yourself sad and irreparably broken forever. Naomi said, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. She relabeled herself to identify with her negative situation. Naomi has a broken heart. No doubt about that. She has a broken heart and she's quite frankly in a place of sorrow and that place of sorrow, it, it generates from a heart of despair. She has cried many, many tears. I'm sure we're talking about Naomi, but remember Ruth lost somebody too. Ruth is probably also crying, but we're talking about <coughs> Naomi here. I perceive that in the back of her mind, what Naomi is saying is God no longer has concern for my family. He no longer has concern for my household, but that's not true. God's mind is always on his children. The book of Isaiah reads this way. Also in the voice translation, starting in verse 15 of chapter 49. Family, God always has his children on his mind. Listen to what the eternal one says, starting in verse 15. Is it possible for a mother, however disappointed, however hurt, to forget her nursing child? Can she feel nothing for the baby she carried and birthed? Even if she could, I, God, will never forget you. Look here. I have made you a part of me, written you on the palms of my hands. Your city walls are always on my mind, always my concern. God says you are always on his mind. You are always on his concern. He has written you on the palm. He has tattooed you on his heart. How can he ever forget you? Naomi somehow feels as if God has dropped his concern for her household, but that's not the case. What has happened to Naomi family? is an unfortunate life event. That's it. Life has happened. Life happens to us all. And in her pain, through her pain, she is basically balling up her emotional fists and shaking her hand at God and saying, you have forsaken me. For sure, she has cried her share of tears. This woman is in pain. And listen, if you have ever experienced the death of somebody close, especially if that death was unexpected, you have a memory of what it must be to look in the, to have a glimpse into Naomi's heart. That thing stings. That thing hurts. That thing catches you off guard. Off guard. That thing, if you ever played a sport or falling down and had that wind knocked out of you and couldn't catch your breath for a while, it hits you like that. It hits you out of nowhere. Naomi is in pain, shaking her fist at God saying, mm-mm. On the inside, she's saying, you have forsaken me. But you know what? in our pain, during our pain, we should never, ever 
allow that to displace the fact that God is there. Another thing I want you to know. Say this with me. In our pain, we must hold fast to the understanding that God can be working out a purpose through our lives, even during our darkest hours. We got to hold on fast to that, that even through our darkest hours, that God could be working a purpose through us. As believers, we are quick to quote that scripture that says all things work together for the good. We can say that thing from memory. But do we really comprehend the depth of what we're saying? Look at that in Romans. Romans 8 verse 28. We're going to read it twice. The first one coming out of the voice translation. The second one coming out of the passion. The voice Bible says it this way. We are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something good and beautiful when we love him and accept his invitation to live according to his plan. How does the passion Bible put that? It says. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design, his design purpose. This verse of scripture is dripping wet with one message. Trust God. It doesn't matter how it looks. Trust God. It doesn't matter how long you've been working at it. Trust God. It doesn't matter how hard it's get, it gets. Trust God. It don't matter what they say. Trust God. It don't matter. It don't matter. It don't matter. Trust God that all things can work together for the good for them who love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. The Passion Bible says that all the details of your life are woven together. God's making a tapestry out of you. Just keep moving. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep your trust, as they say, on 10. Keep it completely, totally nested in God. Once again, the Passion Bible says, so we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good, for we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. To look up from an undesirable situation, to look up from something that is completely unwanted and still say in your heart, that God can bring a good work from this family that takes trust to be broken on the inside and sobbing on the outside and still look up and say in your heart that God can work a good purpose from this family that takes trust. A person who has that kind of trust in God, a complete, a full, a total trust in God, that person also has the assurance that under God's guidance, guess what? Their tears grow flowers. Oh, yeah. That kind of person. A person 
who has no doubt that all things work together for the good. Because God is in control. Whenever that person cries, no matter how long they cry, no matter how much they've been crying, they have the assurance that under God's guidance, my tears grow flowers. Let me show you this graphic. Say this with me, family. Say, under God's guidance, tears grow flowers. Now, let's make that thing personal. Say, under God's guidance, my tears grow flowers. That's right. Under God's guidance, your tears grow flowers. Now, we're going to supplement this, saying, this thing with a smithism. And I want you to say that with me also. It, it says this, say this, say the path to something, path to something always, runs always runs through something. something. Keeping in mind that your tears grow flowers and marrying that with the path to something always runs through something. Hear this, loved ones. Often God's purpose for your life only reveals itself after you go through. It doesn't necessarily reveal itself in the beginning. It doesn't necessarily reveal itself during the process. But God's purpose in life sometimes reveals itself only after you go through. Therein lies the benefit and the importance of going through. Plus, guess what, family? You don't go through this thing alone. God is always with you. The 23rd Psalm, which, by the way, has been the topic of our corporate prayer for almost four months now. Says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. I will not fear because I know that my God is with me as I go through on my way to. I know my God is with me as I go through on my way to my destiny. God, you are always there. You are always with me. You are my good shepherd. You will never leave. I always have the comfort of knowing that you're right by my side. God, you are always there with me as I go through my tears on my way to be who you call me to be. God, you are always with me. You are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a better me. God, you are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a stronger me. God, you are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a more committed me. God, you are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a more confident me. God, you are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a more determined me. God, you are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a happier me. God, you are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a healthier me. God, you are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a peaceful me. 
God, you are with me as I go through my tears on my way to a more prosperous me. God, you are always with me on my way as I go through my tears on my way to become who you call me to be. And I am fully persuaded that not one tear falls from my face without you catching it and then putting it in the garden of my life to grow flowers for me. Not in the sweet by and by, but while I live. God, I am certain that not a tear falls from my face without you catching that tear and putting that tear in the garden of my life to grow flowers for me while I live. Yeah, you may have failed that test. You may have not accomplished the goal that you want to accomplish and you may have shed some tears because of it, but you just stay under God's guidance and you watch your flowers bloom. You may, because of your circumstances, for whatever reason, feel like you're less of a woman, but you shed your tears. That's good. But you stay under God's guidance and you watch God have your flowers bloom. Yeah. You may feel like less of a woman. But you stay under God's guidance and you watch God tell you that you are the woman you need to be. You stay under God's guidance and you watch your flowers bloom. Yeah, you may feel like you're less of a man for whatever reason. You may have cried your tears. We may not have seen it. It may have been all by yourself in your car in the darkest room that you could find. But you know what? You keep shedding those tears. I get it. Pain hurts. But you also stay under God's guidance because under God's guidance, you sit there and you watch your flowers bloom. You may be hurt. You may be broken. The situation may have you in agony. Yeah, you lost a loved one. Yeah, whatever happened to break your heart, we do not know. We don't, we don't have to know. All we know is our God is the repairer of hearts. All we know is that God, our God is the one that can take someone who is hopeless and give them hope. Take someone who is sad and give them joy. Take someone who, who, who feels that if they're lost and make them found. Our God can take your tears and produce flowers from your tears. It doesn't matter how broke you think you are, how sad you think you're going to be forever. Our God can take your tears and produce flowers. You just stay with God. Just stay with God. With God, family, tears grow flowers. You may not see it, but with every tear, as long as you stay with God, there is a garden growing for you. And that garden that is growing is not necessarily the garden that, oh, well, maybe you got a purpose and that purpose isn't necessarily for you. So you're not going to see the benefit. Our God is not slack in having you do all these things for him and not having some benefit to show for you. God says that I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly to the full until it overflows. And that means if you're going to be able to experience the overflow, you got to 
be here to see the overflow. You got to be live to you got to be alive to experience it and to live it and to enjoy it. That is not just in the sweet by and by. That is not just for your children. That is not just for your grandchildren. God wants you to live abundantly today for you. He doesn't want you to do all the work and get none of the benefit. That's not how God works. Now, he is generational. You will do something that benefits others. But it is not necessarily the case that God will have you work and work and work and not give you any enjoyment from your effort. The tears you cry. Those tears. Those things grow flowers. When you are in God. Say this with me under God's guidance. Tears grow flowers. Now, these women that we've been talking about, Naomi and Ruth, I am sure they've cried their share of tears. But you know what? God has a brighter day in store for them. Many of us have cried tears. But you know what? God's got a brighter day in store for you. Every hair on your head, the Bible says. God has a number on it. If God is so meticulous about you that he can number the hairs on your head. Your tears do not go unnoticed. Picking book of Ruth up. In verse 22. It says, Ruth chapter 1, verse 22 in the voice version of the Bible. This was how Naomi came into Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law Ruth from Moab. It was at the beginning of the barley harvest when they returned to the land. That might seem like just a, a, a basic statement, but it's not. That, that's, that's, that scripture that we just read. That thing loaded. What do I mean? It says that Naomi and Ruth returned to Naomi's homeland. And when they returned, it was the beginning of the barley harvest. Can you put that verse 22 up for me? It's OK. Let me let me read it for you one more time. It says, this was how Naomi came into Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, from Moab. It was the beginning of the barley harvest when they returned to the land. Family, let me just give you the punchline. Naomi, look at that. Naomi, this, you have verse 22? Oh, I apologize. You told me. You know what? When somebody shake their head from side to side... <laughs> That does not mean, yeah. <laughs> she going to get me afterwards. That's the minute I was shaking my head. You know, you know I have it. But it says that when Naomi returned to her homeland, it was the beginning of the barley season. 
If I were to put that another way, I would say this. When Naomi returned home, God already had events in motion to turn her situation around. What am I saying to you? Believer, come home. Believer, come home. Believer, return to God. Come back to the place of complete commitment and devotion to him. Return to the place you left. For some of you, you left long ago. But the time has come to come back home. And guess what? When you elect to come back home, you need to know that God already has events in motion to turn your situation around. <laughs> so not only do your tears grow flowers, but when you elect to get back committed and devoted to God, know that the moment you decide to come back home, your God has already got events in motion to turn your situation around. It says Naomi returned from Moab, meaning she went back to her hometown. And when she when she arrived in Bethlehem late in the spring, it was the beginning of the harvest. God already has things in motion to turn that woman's situation around. Jumping into chapter two, it begins at verse one. It says now Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech had a relative in Bethlehem, an honorable, wealthy man named Boaz. One day, Ruth, the foreign woman who returned with Naomi from Moab, approached Naomi with a request. Ruth says, let me go out into the field and pick up whatever grain is left behind, left behind the harvesters. Maybe someone will be merciful to me. Naomi says, go ahead, my daughter. Go on, girl. Go and do what you got to do. Verse three, Ruth left and went into the fields to pick up the gleanings or the, the, the scrappings that were left behind. The grain that had been left behind by the harvesters. And so it was that the portion of the field she was working in belonged to Boaz, who was part of Elimelech's family. As she was working in his field, Boaz happened to arrive from Bethlehem and he greeted the harvesters. OK, it's going to get interesting, family. Boaz says, talking to the harvesters, the eternal one be with you. The harvesters say, may the eternal one bless you. Then seeing Ruth, Boaz spoke to the young man in charge of the harvesters. Boaz said, whom does this young woman belong to? Now, Boaz looks out. And he sees someone unfamiliar. Keep in mind, these are Boaz's crew. They're working his field. He know all the faces of the people that work his field. But this woman is an unfamiliar face. Listen, listen to what the overseer says. Boaz says, whom does this woman belong to? The overseer says, she is the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from Moab. 
She came and asked my permission to pick up the grain our harvesters leave behind and gather it all into sheaves for herself. Except for one small break. Everybody say one small break. Except for one small break, she has been there all day working in the field from morning until now. Indeed, Boaz noticed that this woman was a different face. But you know what I believe? What I believe that really stuck in his gullet, what really stuck in his heart, what really resonated in his spirit was how the overseer described the way Ruth approached the work. I believe that when he heard how this woman handled her business with such aggression, it, it just kind of stuck in the it stuck in the Boaz spirit. When he heard how this woman worked in the field all day with only one small break, an effort that probably surpassed all these other rascals that had been working in his fields all this time, men and women. When he heard the way she handled her business, when she heard, when heard the way she approached it, that was a quality that Boaz could not ignore. Point blank, it was Ruth's commitment and devotion to the task at hand that caused Boaz to take notice. It captured his attention. That leads me to a question for all of us. Family, does your commitment and devotion to God capture his attention? Hey, I know that God has an unfailing love for us. I know that God is always there for us. But when God looks at your commitment and devotion to him, does it take his breath away? Or does it cause him to take a breath? Does your commitment and devotion to God capture his attention? The way Ruth was handling this thing out in the field, hey, I believe that captured Boaz's attention. Now, Boaz is going to begin to talk to Ruth in verse 8 because he is just impressed by the way this girl approaches things. He's, he, wants to show her, he wants to show her favor. Verse 8, Boaz says to Ruth, listen to me, my daughter. Do not go and glean in any other field. In fact, do not go outside my property at all, but stay with the young women who work for me, following the harvesters and bundling the grain into sheaves. Watch the harvesters and see which field they're working in. Follow along behind these servants of mine. I have warned the young men not to touch you. If you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars my young men have filled for the harvesters. Overwhelmed, Ruth bowed down before Boaz, putting her face to the ground in front of him. Ruth then says, I am just a foreigner. Why have you noticed me and treated me as if I'm one of your favorites? Family, that's a valid question. That's a real valid question. I say it's a valid question because you know what? Ruth, she's new to this area. In her mind, 
with the exception of Naomi. Don't really nobody know me up in here like that. I mean, so the question to Boaz, who is essentially a stranger, the question is valid. Because of the way he approaches her and begins to show her so much favor, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in the back of Ruth's mind, there is the thought that, OK, if I accept this favor. Hey, what you want in return? It's a valid question. Ruth asks why. Now, for all my young people. And what I'm getting ready to say does not just apply to, to, to my young people. I'm, I'm all y'all Papa Pastor. Y'all know how I say that. It's a Papa Pastor moment right now. So I'm talking to my young people. And the reason I talk to my young people is because at that stage of their life, they're the ones that are more subjected to various authorities. But it applies to all of you. But young people. Ruth. Here asked why. And that's a valid question. There is a reason why your why your parents and those who love you ask you to not be so quick to entertain strangers. There is a reason for that. Listen, when someone unfamiliar comes to you with a proposition. You take 100% comfort in knowing it's your 100% right to look them in the eye and ask them why. I don't care if it's a teacher. Why I need to do that? Why I need to go there? Why are you giving me this? It is your 100% right to ask an unfamiliar person why. I don't care if it's a neighbor. Why? I don't care if it's if it if it's a family member. Auntie somebody from somewhere. You don't know her. Why? Why do I need to do that? Why do I need to go there? Why are you offering me this? Am I asking you? To be mean? No. Am I asking you to be, you know, kind of standoffish? No. Am I asking you to be disrespectful? No. What I am saying, though, if someone unfamiliar to you that you do not know comes to you with a proposition or if in your spirit you have an inkling about something that somebody is asking you to do that it just don't feel right, you take comfort and you have courage to open up your mouth and you ask why. That's a very valid question. You want me to do what? Well, you know what? Let's, let's ask my mom and daddy first. You need me to go well? Well, you know, let's, let's ask my mom and daddy first. You're offering me what? You know what? Let's, let's, let's ask my mom and daddy first. Ruth gets a proposition from someone who is unfamiliar and she asks why. And you know what? That's a very valid question because she don't know this man. She doesn't know what strings could be attached to his favor. 
And the simple, th the simple question that she asked is basically she's saying, I see your favor that you're offering me, but what strings are attached, if any? Ruth says, I am just a foreigner. Why have you noticed me and treated me as if I'm one of your favorites? Boaz says, verse 11, I have heard your story. I know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your since your own husband died. Ruth asks why. And Boaz responds with, hey, I've heard of your commitment and devotion. Boaz says the testimony of your commitment and devotion precedes you. Family, does your commitment and devotion precede you? Does your commitment and devotion to God present a testimony that shows up in the room before you even get there? Does your commitment and devotion to God testify? Boaz says, no, I've never met you face to face, but doggone it, girl, your commitment and devotion that you have been displayed, that has got all the way to my ears from way out here. Does your commitment and devotion testify? Boaz says, I have heard your story. I know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your own husband died. I know you left your own mother and father, your home and your country, and you have come to live in a culture that must seem strange to you. May the eternal repay you for your sacrifices and reward you richly for what you have done. It is under the wings of Israel's God, the eternal one, that you have sought shelter. Boaz says, may God repay you for your sacrifice. And that aligns well with the book of Hebrews. Boaz says, may God repay your sacrifice and labor of love. Hebrews chapter six, verse 10 in the Amplified Classic says, for God is not unrighteous to forget or overlook your labor and, and the love which you have shown for his namesake in ministering to the needs of the saints, his own consecrated people, as you still do. God is not one that forgets your labor of love. Boaz says, may God repay what you have done. He goes on to talk about what Ruth gave up. But as for what she gave up to follow Naomi. The prayer that Boaz speaks from his lips, it echoes the sentiment of what Jesus said in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 10 in the Message Bible, starting in verse 29. Now, Jesus said this generations later. Boaz is saying, I know what you left. You left your house. You left your family. You left your land. You left your country. But what does Jesus say? In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Message Bible, Jesus says, mark my words. No one who sacrifices house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, 
children, land, whatever, because of me and the message will lose out. They'll get it all back, but multiplied many times in homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and land, but also in troubles. And then the bonus eternal life. Boaz says, for whatever you lost or you left, I pray that God repays you. Jesus says nobody gives up everything for the sake of following God, for the sake of the gospel that don't get repaid. And yes, there are going to be some troubles. And guess what? Tears are your trouble. Tears are a reflection of your trouble. But that doesn't mean that the houses and the sisters and the lands and everything you lost, God don't have sprouting from the ground. Ruth and Naomi have both cried their share of tears. But guess what? I can already see their flowers blooming. You know what, family? That's a good place to put a pin in it today. We'll pick up right there next time. Oh, I love you so much. Let's pray. God, I thank you for each and every person here. Life happens to each of us. None of us is immune to pain, to hardships, to heartbreak. And all of those things at one point in time can result in tears running down our face. But you are the God who never leaves us. And we know that all things work together for the good as long as we stay in line and stay locked in to your plan. Knowing that all those things work together for the good, God, we know that somewhere you are collecting all those tears and you're using those tears in the garden of our lives to grow flowers for us. God, you, you are mapping out something in our lives that we may not be able to see, but we trust that you are working it out for our good. Our prayer, God, is for those who may have had their commitment and devotion towards you go astray, that they return back home. And God, I know you know my heart in saying that, but just for clarity for everybody else, when we're talking about returning back home, we're talking about returning to him. We're not talking about returning to a building. We're not talking about, to be specific, we're not talking about getting them back in church. The primary thing, God, is relationship with you. So our prayer, our core prayer, before we even see their face again, God, is wherever they are, our prayer is that their commitment and devotion gets back to be rooted in you. 
That's what we mean by return home. And as they make their way back, if they elect to come back to be with us here, we will welcome them with open arms as well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, that's what God had to say to us today. We pray that it blessed you. As always, we pray that the word of God blesses you, not just years from now or months from now or weeks from now, not even days from now, but we pray that you got something out of the message today that would change your life immediately. God bless you and look forward to chatting with you next time.